He is risen. Oh, what a great day it is to celebrate. We get to, as Christians, celebrate every day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that has all meaning for us. Had Jesus stayed in the tomb, uh, there would not be more than just kind of memorials and memories and uh, kind of uh, deep, sad feelings about what had happened and what happened to him. But, oh, he was, he was resurrected, and... He's alive, and he's, he's our Savior. He answers prayer. We were talking about this yesterday, how many times just in the recent months we've called on our prayer chain here, and God has answered prayer miraculously. And we thank each one of you who are participating in that and praying with us for all the needs that have taken place during the pandemic and all the various things that have been going on around us. God has been alive. He has been doing miracles and we're so grateful for that. We're looking at uh, John chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. If you want to turn there, we'll read together uh, one of the eyewitnesses to what happened, the resurrection. And you may wonder, as you look through the various accounts uh, in each of the Gospels, we have four Gospels, that there are different uh, looks at what happened on Resurrection Day. And uh, it is much like when there was... Uh, you. You were called to be an eyewitness of an accident somewhere. Uh, I was telling someone the other day, like uh, two cars collide in an intersection. And uh, in one of the cars in the back seat is a young woman. Uh, as soon as the cars collide, she opens that door on the right side, jumps out and runs off, runs away, you know. And so they begin to, the police officer comes and he begins to take the reports and he gathers the eyewitnesses. So everybody was on the side of the street where the young woman jumped out and ran off, they told them about the young woman that jumped up and ran off. The people on the other side of the street didn't see it, and they were saying, hey, there was only a guy, he was sitting there, I didn't see anybody else in the car, and he stayed in the car when the accident happened. So there were different witness accounts of what happened, uh, different things that took place, but we get the whole picture as we gather the harmony of the Gospels, and we'll kind of take a brief look at that today, what happened at the resurrection. But I want to start reading with you here in uh, John chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet of where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending, and let's read this part together, to my Father 
and to your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Mary Magdalene uh, came to, uh, from the village of Magdala on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. She was one of a group of women that became followers of Christ uh, during his earthly ministry. And she was, um, and the other women had, would follow Jesus and the disciples uh, from village to village and place to place. And uh, they offered financial support. They uh, served in every way they could to help so that uh, Jesus' message could be spread, so that he could teach. And we are also told in Scripture that Jesus cast out seven demons. Uh, the King James Version refers to it as seven devils out of Mary Magdala in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. And before she had met Jesus, we get this picture that uh, she was in bondage. She was a captive of demonic forces. And how she got in that condition, we don't really know. We're not told her full story, and so we don't know exactly what happened, but we do know the story. She was bound, and she was set free, which is the testimony of so many that had an encounter with Jesus, and still today. But we can be certain that if having one demon is terrible, having seven is <laughs> unthinkable, right? And no doubt her condition was well-known, and, and she was a well-known person for uh, what had happened. And just thinking back to the story of the Gadarean demoniac, he was known uh, by everyone that was there. And in fact, uh, after Jesus' miracle in his life, when he came back to Gadara, uh, there was a great crowd, for they knew this man that had been bound by demonic forces, and now he was free. And so... I believe that many of the reasons there were great crowds were the stories of people who were infamous, that Jesus had changed their lives and transformed them by his touch and his ministry over them, and by the power of God set them free. So some people believe that Mary Magdala was the woman that was caught in adultery. John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11 tells us that uh, story of the woman that was caught in adultery, but we really don't have good connecting evidence to show that that might be the case. Others have suggested that she was a sinful woman that came and anointed Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, but the Bible doesn't give us clear connections on that as well. There have been traditions in the church that uh, she was a promiscuous woman of some sort, and, and, uh, but there's no reason uh, for us to find that connection either. It's not really completely borne out in Scripture. It's clear so that we could see it. But in church history, she became also a symbol of the repentant sinners who come to Jesus with very checkered backgrounds. And this may, in fact, be true in, in her case, but we're not completely certain. We know she was bound, and we know that Jesus set her free. I often think about what Jesus said in one of his teachings about who was most grateful uh, when he was talking about debts that were being forgiven. You may remember the story where Jesus talked about a man who had a small debt, and uh, the person that he owed the debt to came and forgave the debt. And there was a man who owed a great debt, 
Uh, it was an insurmountable amount and uh, could not have been paid in four lifetimes. And so when this man's debt was forgiven, uh, Jesus then asked the crowd, he says, who was most grateful? Who was most thankful for the forgiveness and uh, the canceling of the debt? And it was obvious, he who owed the greatest debt, the crowd said. And so when we look at people like Mary of Magdala, we see that there was probably great gratitude as the reason they were followers of Jesus. They were so grateful for the magnitude of forgiveness and deliverance that had happened in their life. If we piece together the various accounts of Easter Sunday, it seems that Jesus rose from the dead sometime in pre-dawn hours. There was an earthquake recorded, the seal was broken, the stones rolled away by the angels, and Jesus came out of the tomb. The soldiers were knocked unconscious, and when they awoke, they fled or ran off. And when the women uh, found the tomb empty, they were confused and terrified and uh, went back to tell the disciples. And the angels, uh, then, of course, following that, the angels told that, that Christ had risen from the dead. Uh, they, they returned to tell the disciples, uh, and, and the disciples thought they were talking nonsense. Uh, and John and Peter, of course, thought, we'll find out what's really going on. We can't really understand uh, you know, their, their excitement about what's, what's taking place here. And so they went to investigate, and they saw that the, the linen wrappings were laid exactly where Jesus' body had been laid, and they were placed there uh, on, on the Friday, and, and, uh, and now the, it's just the wrappings, and there, are, there is no body. And they then believed. And then we find that they left to tell the others. They ran off to tell the others. But it is probably and likely at this point that Magdala returns to the tomb in the story that you and I are looking at today, the unfolding events that took place. She's confused, bewildered, in shock, frightened and, and brokenhearted, and, and it's not yet occurred to her the significance of that tomb being empty, that that could mean that Jesus had been resurrected, that he was risen from the dead. And as I uh, said that of Mary Magdala, that she was the last at the cross, and the first at the tomb. And this is a, a high honor that was spoken of in history, in church history, about her because none of the men who followed Jesus had the same testimonial. She was the first to see him alive, the first to hear his voice. And the irony of the story is when she saw him, she became the first evangelist in Christian history. Christ bestowed upon her this honor, and he bestowed it upon her because she loved him so deeply and with such great devotion. In this passage that we've read are what I believe are the two relevant questions of Easter, and they speak like never before, I think, into the time in which you and I are living right now. And these two questions we read just a moment ago are, why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? Grief, disappointment, fear, isolation is something that we are all familiar with. And we've lived through this together in this pandemic. 
and we're trying to make sense of a divided nation and really a divided world. And we can easily identify with this woman who was weeping. There have been many of these moments over the last two years where you have an alone place to weep and to cry over what is happening in our world, what is happening in our nation, what is happening in our family, what is taking place all around us. We've tried to make sense of things, and at night it's kept us awake, and we find a place in our reading in Scripture where we again are weeping. We have been in grief. And the question, when we apply it to this passage of Scripture to our life, is a sobering question when we apply it individually to our lives. It's not, why is she weeping? But the question that we are applying to our lives this morning is, why are you weeping? What is it that's brought about the great grief in your life? Loneliness, disappointment. A sense of hopelessness? Is it a deep sense of loss? Is it just complete exhaustion from trying to keep your world together somehow? Are there hurts and wounds that are very deeply personal, and they've occurred as a result of these last two years in particular? How about rejection? Are you weeping because you felt rejected by those that you thought were friends and those who had surrounded your life, who have taken a different path, a different idea than you? And it's felt like rejection. Abandonment. Has someone turned their back on you that you thought would always be there? Fear. Are you weeping because of fear? The wonderful thing about Easter is that Easter resolves grief and replaces weeping with joy. Yeah. In Scripture, it says that when, in the moment that Jesus, in that selfsame moment that Jesus spoke her name, Mary, the grief was replaced with joy. The question is, why are you weeping on Easter? Why are you weeping in the presence of the answer? Why are you weeping in the presence of eternity? Why are you weeping in the presence of a restored, restored relationship where my Father has now become your Father? My kingdom has now become your kingdom. My family has now become your family. My wealth has now become your wealth. My hope has now become your hope. My joy has now become your joy. The second question is, is equally fascinating when we apply it to our lives personally. He says to her, whom do you seek? And that really gets to the root of the first question, doesn't it? Easter has a different meaning for those who are seeking to have a person personal relationship with God and those who are not seeking to have a personal relationship with God. For those who are not pursuing to have the Lordship issue over their lives, to, to surrender their lives to the Lord and, and to make Him leader of their lives, Easter has a completely different meaning. For those who are not seeking to make Him Lord and leader of their lives, grief remains unresolved. Hope is fragile. 
Disappointment is a constant companion. Deep personal wounds are regularly reopened. And fear becomes the strongest motivator for their life. Life decisions are made on what I fear most and what I fear least. We must individually answer the questions of Easter. We can't do this corporately. These questions are very personal. There are two questions for you as an individual. We can't think of them as a church or as, as, as a family or, or for someone else down the street. But these are personalized questions. Ask of Jesus to one woman and ask of Jesus today to each of us as individuals. Easter provides a remedy for weeping. But Jesus wants an answer from you. Why are you weeping? He is risen. The resurrection reveals our God's power over death and that death is not final. And he's asking a question of us individually that we need to search our hearts and find an answer. Why are we weeping in the midst of crisis, in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of difficulty, in the, in the midst of, of struggles and trials, and, and, and in the midst of any kinds of things that have taken place around us, in us? Why are we weeping in the midst of sickness? Why are we weeping in the midst of resurrection? The second question, whom do you seek? And what I would say to you today about this question is that seeing the miraculous did not end the search for many in the day of Jesus. What am I saying? Many who took part in the mob to crucify Jesus had likely been eyewitnesses to see Jesus. Or they had a friend who was an eyewitness that saw Jesus do something miraculous. Open blind eyes. Heal a lame man. Provide, uh, you know, bring, bring someone who's dead back to life. Many of these people were either eyewitnesses or they had a best friend they trusted and loved who was an eyewitness who saw what was taking place. The miraculous does not end the search for people in the terms of, of their spiritual journey. Our sinful nature isn't impressed by miracles. This is a lordship issue, and, and the struggle of whom do you seek is about who's going to be in charge of my life, me or God? Who am I going to follow? People that I look up to now that are, are in front of me as human beings that I can watch and see, or am I going to follow every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, the living word of God? Is this going to be a resource book for me that I pull off the shelf every once in a while to look at to find a little bit of encouragement or to, to strengthen an argument that I have with someone? Or will this be a way of life for me? Yes. Yes. It's always a lordship issue. Are we looking for the one who overcame death or for nat the one who will be in charge of our natural cravings and solving those pleasures and helping us gain control. Whom do you seek? We tend to find what we are seeking. That's not to say that 
we want what we find. <laughs> we just find what we're looking for. And whatever we are looking for, we tend to find it, right? Activists find causes. Alcoholics find alcohol. Gamblers find racetracks. Lust finds momentary fulfillment. Worriers find valid reasons to worry. The greedy find a victim. The fearful find monsters worthy of fearing. We find what we're looking for, but we don't always want what we've found. Easter is the opportunity to re-examine whom we seek. You notice the question was not, what do you seek? The question was, whom do you seek? If you want more than, than what you have been finding, this Easter is for you. If you want real peace, lasting peace, where you have real rest when you lay your head down because you know you've been forgiven, you know you've given your day to the one who leads it, if you want freedom from bondage, of a sinful nature. We misunderstand often what sin is about. It's not just the act that you did or something that you did not do. It is a nature that cloaks us. In early in Scripture, we're given the picture of it where Cain uh, takes the life of his, his um, brother, Abel. And it's, it's, it's a horrible picture to think about, but God comes and warns him and says, sin is crouching at your door. Don't let it cloak you, because the person that you think you are is, is not really what's going on inside of you. And when you allow sin to, to cloak you, you're going to do something that's destructive. Freedom from the bondage of sinful nature. If you want true joy, joy that lasts, joy that, that, that is even there in the midst of weeping and, and grief and sorrow, joy that just underlies your life, then this Easter is for you. If you want hope, not something that's fragile, but something that's firm, and that's the difference between the hope that's talked about in Scripture versus the hope that mankind talks about. I hope this works out. I hope things will happen well. I hope I get that job. I hope we can get the new car. I, I hope that uh, we're going to get that house in the economy that you and I are living in right now, right? <laughs> we put the highest bid. I hope we get the house, right? But that's not at all what Scripture is talking about. It's the kind of hope here is already certain. It's already paid for. It's our living hope. Amen? If you're looking for victory over death, this Easter is for you. If you're looking for forgiveness for yourself or the ability to forgive others, this Easter is for you. If you're looking for real purpose and meaning to your life, this Easter is for you. And when Jesus whispered the name Mary, all of that came together for her. Jesus did not say, what are you seeking? Because we have just filled our closets and our homes and our garages with what we have been seeking. Idols abound 
in the day of, 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 uh, that we live that we think there are no idols, right? <laughs> They're around every corner. I remember years ago, David Wilkerson saying, if you don't believe that, he used to call the television the Babylonian God, okay? <laughs> he said, if you don't believe your television is an idol, why does all the furniture bow to it? Oh, we pay homage. We pay homage. Almighty TV. And we have all kinds of idols, right? We can't mock the, the people who, who used to go burn incense to stone and stuff like that. We've got them all over the place, right? He didn't say, what do you seek? Yeah, right. He said, whom do you yeah. seek? Yeah. Who are you looking for? When you get there, when you get to that question, and you read that question, I am seeking the living God. Amen. Everything changes. Yeah. If this is what... You want for Easter true joy, true freedom from bondage. Mary is a testimonial, a living testimonial for us of someone who embraced that and experienced it. Who walked close with Jesus out of the extreme gratitude of what he had accomplished in her life. I love uh, Vanessa was sharing with me. She's not in here. I was looking over where she normally sits. She's helping with the kids. She was sharing with me what Francis Chan had said. And man, this is so relevant to our uh, time right now we're living. He said in scripture, the Bible says that when Jesus welcomes us home, he's, he's going to say, well done. He's not going to say, well spoken on Facebook. Yeah. Well thought through. Yeah. Well meaning. Yeah. Your, your intentions were so Honorable. And you let everybody know, you know, how much you love the poor. Now everybody knows that. It's a good thing that they know it, right? But he's going to say, well done. Well done. I'm inviting the worship team if they would come. The two questions of Easter that you and I need to answer this morning before we walk out these doors, we must answer these questions. They're the questions that are relevant to our time more than any other time, I think, that you and I have lived in right now. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Come to grips with it. Be honest with God this morning. Why are you weeping? Is there true value in it? It's a, it's a, it's a question of like, in the light of, of Jesus as Savior and resurrected Savior, is this worth crying over? Is this worth spending all my grief over? I'm not saying grief is wrong. Paul uh, talked about we don't grieve as those who have no hope, right? We grieve, but we grieve with hope. It's a different kind of grief. Christian grief is different. And if, it, and if you come to a place this morning where you're saying, I'm, I'm really weeping because I'm not really yet surrendered, he said, whom, whom do you seek? What are you looking for? You know, what's your stopping point on this spiritual journey? You're just going to keep going? Uh, you know, uh, you, you, the miraculous is not going to be the answer. I've done the miraculous in your life. You're standing here breathing because of the miraculous. I have healed you. I have provided for you. I have raised you up. You're a walking, talking miracle. You've seen miracles in your family. 
You, you have watched miracles take place around you. Miracles aren't going to change you. If you're sitting here telling me, if only this happens, then, 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 then I'm going to seek you, Lord. If only this takes place. If, if one more thing will, just give me one more miracle, God. He's saying, that's not going to, it's not going to happen. The rich man and Lazarus story, you may remember where uh, in Lazarus, uh, you know, is, finds himself comforted in Abraham's bosom. The rich man, when he died, uh, finds himself in hell, and he's crying out to, uh, please send back somebody from the dead to tell my brothers. And, and this is so profound. You know, uh, he said, my brothers are still alive on earth. Tell them not to come here where I'm at in hell. It's so tormenting. It's a horrible place. Please go back. Send someone from the dead. It will scare them. And Abraham says, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets. In other words, if they won't hear the people standing in front of them right now telling them, if they won't hear me doing the miraculous in their lives right now, saving them, steering them in directions, guiding them and directing them, they will not hear a ghost come back from the dead. They won't hear them. Because as soon as that fearful moment is gone, they're going to go back to their old ways again. That's what we used to call when I was growing up fire insurance in church, you know. Like, you know, we'd have these services, man, where everybody just felt so convicted. They'd give their hearts to Christ and surrender, you know. But then after the pressure was off, you know, there's no service and it's not, you don't feel the tension and the worship and all that, the environment and stuff. It's right back to normal, right? Right back to like, okay, this is okay. I can get away with this. I can do that. Here we are. Why are you weeping? And whom do you seek?